Classroom Critics Podcast, a podcast show by teachers who uh, love film. And today, uh, well, I'm Bill Abers. I'm joined today by Michael Mulvey and Walter Freeman, the usual suspects. <laughs> and uh, today we're going to talk about uh, film noir and a film noir classic, uh, Double, Double Indemnity. And uh, it's directed by Billy Wilder, starring Fred McMurray, Edward G. Robinson, Barbara Stanwyck, and uh, I would I suppose if you're gonna put a film noir classic in a time capsule, this could be this could be the one you choose, right? The one you want to introduce to an alien species. This well, is, when you look up film noir, like all the qualifications for it has all of them. I think that it basically film noir, as its classification, took its direction from the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, because of all the the femme fatale, the nighttime setting, et cetera, et cetera, the shaded. Um, angle shots and everything like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, that's a good place to start. I mean, we're, uh, you know, film noir as a genre. It's a, it's an interesting genre because it's a genre that's, that was defined, years later. You know, when, they were making these films um, during the, the era of film noir. Um, they didn't know they were making right. necessarily a film noir film. It wasn't categorized that at the time. Um, you know, they were making detective stories or, or what have you, but. Uh, many decades later, they you know looked back and said a lot of these films kind of fit a certain uh, certain mold, and uh, I think appropriately they were named uh, labeled film mm-hmm. film noir. I think right. if, if you look back even further, the the influence of German expressionism and the use of light and shadow was obviously heavily influencing the storytelling and the cinematography and. You know, you find that parallel in the early horror movies as well, in Frankenstein and such, which borrowed heavily from that genre. And so I guess you could say this is just another branch of that sort of stylistic stem. You know, mm-hmm. the, the use of black and white and light and shadow as part of the storytelling process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, trying to judge when the era, of, uh, when the genre of film noir began, um, it's really tough to pinpoint. It's like trying to pinpoint when purple becomes magenta on the spectrum it's 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 we don't really know it's it's a stylistic kind of genre and but it's it's been said quite a few times well i've heard it said that uh the film noir era begins um with citizen kane uh, and ends with uh also another orson welles film Uh, some people say the last classic noir film was touch of evil 1958 Mm -hmm. Now, of course, there's been um, yeah neo noir since then. neo noir since yeah. then. You know, lots of films. That, you know, obviously, it's it's a very uh, influential genre. Yeah, I think there's noir elements in other films too that you know kind of aren't necessarily classic noir. Mm-hmm. They don't follow the formula, but they have that you know kind of element to them nonetheless. Mm-hmm. So, what are some of the characteristics? Uh, do you think are just typical film noir? Well, I just I, I know watching Double Indemnity. It's just like nobody is likable. Not mm-hmm. one person in there is really likable. You know, they're all jerks to each other, mm-hmm. you know, and have bad attitudes like the Zucchetti, yeah, what of it, you know, type of mentality. It's, <laughs> you know, nobody can actually be like, hey, how are you today? It's nice to see you. Right. you know? Even the maid, you know. Yeah. yeah, they keep the liquor locked up. You know, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> or, you know, even Edward G. Robinson, his character who's supposed to be kind of the moral compass of the story, he can't wait to get people into court, to right. send them to the gas chamber, to throw their testimony in their face and... 
you know, he's a, he's a tough cookie. Mm-hmm. So it kind of goes into that idea of film noir as a study, a cynical study of human nature. Right. And, and the pessimistic view of life, pretty much. Yes, you know, that right. within each of us is the potential, you know, because Fred McMurray is a pretty decent guy. You know, but just serial, you know, like one little flirtation, he's ready to kill somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So, True. Yeah. Right. True. I, I like, and I was, you know, that article I had printed earlier and, and shared, which strangely enough doesn't have an author listed, so I cannot credit that person. But um, they talked about this. You know, we, we look today. Why? Why is this film so shocking? Because by today's standards, it can be shown right. full on television. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but. You know, the actors were reluctant to play it. Billy Wilder had to convince them. And if you look back, this is one of the first films, I believe, according to this article, that that uses sexual motivations for its character, for its characters to do those things. As you said, a simple flirtation turns into murder very quickly. And if you look at crime and all that sort of thing, it's always gangsters and for profit or revenge. But this was all about sex. And mm-hmm. What I like, you know, about it is I, Fred McMurray. To me, growing up was always the the father on My Three Sons right. or Flubber, um, and in the early scenes with Barbara Stanwyck, he's just radiating lust. I mean, he's staring at her ankle, and his eyes are burning. And uh, you know, he, it's a quite a remarkable piece of acting. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, he he does it very very well. But it was such an image changer for him. Mm-hmm. I think he was probably like one of the first generations of people that was classically a film actor as well as opposed to you know i've been acting on stage and here's this new genre of film i'll try that too type of thing and you know both barbara stanwick and he as well you know barbara stanwick was not a theater actress she was a film actress and you know to kind of show that depth of character not even not even you know only able to play the likable comedic role but the you know heartless murderer as mm-hmm. well you know so i guess we can point to uh, moral moral corruption as a uh a film noir standard, yeah. you know, the characters who are who have, you know are, who are corrupted, who find them, and often they're characters who uh, at first seem perhaps altruistic. Um, maybe not in the case of this film, but uh, I think of a film, uh, Sunset Boulevard, another Billy Wilder film, where you have uh, William Holden's character at the beginning, um, who uh, you know he's a, he's kind of an up and come, or not an up, like a, a washed up at this point, or a um, washed up before he even begins screenwriter who, um, you know, eventually finds himself in kind of a, a, a labyrinth of um, uh, bad intentions. Right. He's really been twisted by the system, too, you know, like mm-hmm. kind of come there with noble intentions and, you know, like, you know, treated like, you know, I'm sure that he probably had a wonderful screenplay and it was yeah. manipulated by the, uh, you know, studios and yeah. every ounce of dialogue was changed and nothing yeah. like, you know, think of what they did to something like, you know, um, The Glass Menagerie. When it was you know originally filmed, yep. you know sad ending, but you know in the film Laura Waring once you know has a nice gentleman caller who comes and takes her away. You know right. what I mean? So right. you know it's probably that type of yeah, yeah. you know and despondency over it, that. It doesn't take long for him to see an opportunity to make. I'm talking about sensible but still um, the opportunity to sort of seize an opportunity to use basically someone um, right. to advance financially mm-hmm. and not care about it. Yeah, right. Yeah. With Fred McMurray, uh, his character in terms of uh, obviously a morally bankrupt individual, but do you find at first, do you find that the, the corruption, the, um, this darkness is already within, in him at the, you know, from the very beginning? It's got to be, or else it couldn't be so easily tapped, you know? I mean, like I said, I mean, it's like right there within, you know, 
how many minutes that he's in that house, mm-hmm. you know, and I mean, it's not suggested to murder her husband at that moment, but certainly within those moments, you know, it, you know, I'm sure he's toying with the notion. Like mm-hmm. if I bump off that guy, I can have her, mm-hmm. you know? But I think, I think we're meant to think too, that he's, you know, just a typical insurance guy, like right. many other people. And perhaps the suggestion is there. Man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That this, this is something that everyone's capable of well, delving was, into. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's necessarily like a trait that everybody has, but who hasn't been in a road rage incident and somebody calls you off and like, Oh, you know, you had a moment <laughs> of rage and, you know, thought in your head and then your, you know, your rational human being part of, part of you says, no, that's wrong. You don't, you know? yeah, you don't give into the right. suggestion. No. Yeah. Well, and, and again, I, I like how his character, you know, he, he does start out obviously very attracted to her, but, you know, it turns out, and a little spoiler alert here, that, that she's been very manipulative and has killed before and has plans to kill again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he even says in that piece, and, and someone's going to bump off me, and then someone's going to bump off Zaketi, and someone's going to bump off Lola. And um, so you, it's very ambiguous at the start as to who's actually coming up with the idea of murder. Right. And then you realize, of course, you know, Barbara Stanwyck's character does. Well, her fingerprints are never on it, though, because, you know, the, the wife before, she just, you know, took advantage of her illness and you know, probably gave her pneumonia, essentially, by opening the windows and, you know, and making her feel chilled and, you know, oh, well, do you know she's dead, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, not doing her job as her nerves properly. But she comes out and, you know, the first time you see her in this film, she's yeah. literally, she's naked. She has a towel around mm-hmm. her, but that's passing, you know, in the Hays Code era right. for nudity. And, and she's brazen about it. And, right. And, and, you know, from the, that moment, he's hooked. Yeah, there's no modesty yeah. to her whatsoever, mm-hmm. yeah. None whatsoever. She knows mm-hmm. exactly the effect. I mean, she puts the anklet in her in his face and her legs and... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's a nice highly suggestive. The, the femme fatale. You said the the film noir. What's one of the characteristics? Mm-hmm. And that's the, you know the, the femme fatale, the, right. the the female killer, luring a you know easily duped man into doing her dirty deeds. Essentially, the black, yeah. The black widow. Mm-hmm. I, li- I like the shot in the opening scene. You know, he he driving his car radically, and he he pulls into the insurance building, and he's walking there, and his shadow is cast up against the wall, mm-hmm. and just kind of following him as he goes along and, and you know sort of the suggestion there of the, the doppelganger the other mm-hmm. self mm-hmm. the dark self or whatever yeah. Yeah. but he has a he has a conscience throughout he I mean obviously he does horrible things but mm-hmm. he, he worries about it constantly and, and um, you know at some point you're wondering is it to save his own neck or is he really being bothered by what he's done well and he says to her too you, yeah but you're a little more rotten at the end <laughs> you know and I'm sure he thinks that you know but ultimately he's the one that strangled him you know or you know yeah. killed him he also yeah. was looking out for the daughter in the end, too. Right. He, he didn't have to do that. Yeah. He didn't have to make that right. I always wondered about it. I mean, I guess it, right. it seemed a little shady at first. He was, you know, this is the fourth night I've seen her. But then in the end, you know, when he he kind of throws the caddy the bone and, right. and, and, you know, as acknowledged, you know, he's probably a good kid. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a kind of a weird relationship mm-hmm. there. Well, she's the one good character, right? The daughter. Right. I mean, she's the one honest pure intended yeah but even still with like the you know relationship she has with her father I'm going roller skating I told you roller skating yeah you know it's like (laughs) you can't even have like a loving relationship which that sort of teen angst I guess was back at this during Mm -hmm. this time you don't see that exhibited uh, on screen that often right you know Um, so yeah I mean speaking of the Hays Code um, it's really amazing this movie was made you know that this was this was allowed. I mean, just the fact just the fact that all of them are morally bankrupt. It seems to be like um, if you if you're 
if your intention is to kind of use film to exhibit some sort of goodness and uh, you know th- this that film is not doing that at all mm-hmm. you know evil wins out in this film right this this yeah. I mean in the end he gets what's coming to him but right it just I think a lot of the, the censor censors back, censorship back then in the Hayes Code it, it was often their business to try to see to it that films would have some sort of redeeming quality, right. you know, some sort of moral or... And, and that had its impact. I mean, um, George Raft was up for the part of Walter Neff, and he wanted, uh, he was only going to agree to play it if, in the end, he was an FBI agent working undercover to trap uh, Mrs. Dietrich. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, mm-hmm. even then, you know, the actors are coming in, they're worried about their images, they're worried about the moral turpitude, and, they, you know, that would have been a, obviously a ridiculous twist. So I, in a lot of ways, I think, you know, film noir was, was really um, um, daring films because they were throwing it in the face of the Hayes Code. They were, you know, putting in sexual innuendo in the dialogue. I love, I love that in this film. Uh, and, and they were really sort of um, radical films mm-hmm. for the time. I can, you know... I always show the this unit in my film class after I've done screwball comedy. That's what I start out with screwball comedy and then do this to kind of show like the you know duality of human nature too. That you know the, unfortunately there are bad people in the world and there are people who do bad things to each other and it's mm-hmm. you know without filming that portion of life are you really representing with film the totality of humanity? Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. so. But yes, it's interesting that the balance the balance of good and evil aren't necessarily exhibited much in the noir films right it's 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 again they're they're very cynical views of mm-hmm. of the way the world works yeah and i think there's some you know in some cases with some films where people are just kind of you know like for instance like la confidential or something like that you have the you know ed um Bexley, Hexley, i think i actually character that you know, thinks he's going to do, you know, Dudley do right, you know, be the right thing. And then he kind of realizes, like, you know, I can, I'm part of this, mm. you know, and still kind of comes out on the other end, kind of a little more cynical, but still, you know, ultimately a good person. But, it, you know, at the same time, having to be a little bit soiled because of the, yeah, what yeah. he's had to go through. Yeah. yeah. And in that film, which I, I love that film, yeah. but there's redemption for those characters. Right. Uh, Bud White's character, you know, I mean, I was Russell Crowe's character, mm-hmm. Bud White gets redemption and right. he also has a moral code. He doesn't like um, yeah. people who abuse women. And right. So, you know, even um, Kevin Spacey's character mm-hmm. there uh, ends yeah. up uh, trying to do the right thing, trying to be a, a good cop after having sold himself out. Right. You know, these are, like I said, we, we I attached this earlier I didn't, but you know, German expressionism, and mm-hmm. and you know, it went into film noir and into monster movies. But we're watching human monsters here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's right because what are monsters? Are manifestations of our fears or our you know, like the evil that we have within us or whatever they may be. And you know, our bad dreams. You know, I, can you make a film noir in color? I, I don't think so. I mean, these folks, you know, there yeah. was there was limitations. I mean, more to, modern ones, you know, obviously, but well, they, they try Chinatown or something. Yeah, but they, they try, but I th- I still think that the the directors here and the cinematographers, um, they had a particular palette upon which to work, and they yeah. made that work for them. I mean, you know, this was I thought uh, in a lot of ways. I don't think was, this one in particular would have worked if it were filmed in color. Definitely not. No, yeah. yeah, no. Well, it's definitely some of the carryover from this time from film noir to film noir film. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they tended to be black and white. They tended to be lower budgeted. Mm-hmm. Um, they often been, they were often based on uh, easily acquired novels. Right. Um, yeah, like dime store novels. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Elmore Leonard or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think when you have uh, a lack of, of 
let's say budget when it comes to filmmaking sometimes you have to um, sometimes your, your poverty kind of can create some interesting mm-hmm. uh, creativity like you know, obviously one thing that carries over from a lot of the noir films to the point of almost uh, well it wasn't cliche then but um, something you just see a lot of you know the, 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 the lighting through the Venetian blinds mm-hmm. um, which many have interpreted as um, you know uh, symbolic of let's say imprisonment Mm-hmm. You know, prison oh, okay. prison bars. Just right. whenever the, you know, them sort of like trapped in their own world of mm-hmm. corruption and moral bankruptcy. Or even like the clothes that they have to wear, the black and white striped uniforms or whatever. Right, yeah. right, right. But if you think about it, um, when you don't have much money, I mean, that's that's a very cheap effect. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't need any budget whatsoever to create a Venetian. Well, and film noirs blind. are, you know, like not, they don't necessarily require huge special effects or anything no. like that. It's just a. Uh, you know, for the most part, a pretty simple story. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you know, stupid man falls in love with a sexy woman who gets him to murder her mm-hmm. husband slash whoever, you know, and there's a sensational aspect to it. Bag, yeah. You know? I mean, the only one I can think of is like, you know, Blade Runner is kind of a film noir, but it, you know, yeah. and, um, but you know, and that has obviously a ton of special effects in it, mm-hmm. probably more expensive to make, but yep. you know, ultimately not because it was, you know, the, other than Harrison Ford, who wasn't a huge star when he made it, you know, Mm-hmm. There wasn't really that much expense to it, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I mean they were cheaply made. I mean, lots of shadows, lots, lots of fog, lots of high contrast lighting. Which, mm-hmm. again, it's just it's it. They look they, they look very striking, but they weren't expensive to make. So right. a lot. Of, I mean, they were almost like just very cheap, homegrown mm-hmm. effects. Yeah, but, but it's funny. But you take your other black and white films of the time that you know are, are still again, as I said, working on the same absence of color palette, but. They're they're not noir like, mm-hmm. and so you know the the use of light and shadow is is very very different. And you, you take a breezy comedy of Billy Wilder again with yeah. something like it hot, right? And he, that has gangsters and crime and, and this and that, but it's it's so um, so different. It's almost bright and sunny. But I think it works to his advantage to have those characters of Geraldine and Josephine or you know Daphne. Um, being in black and white because it probably would have been a lot more apparent that they were men, <laughs> you know, if they were in color. Yeah. You know? Well, it's not a rule of comedy. Comedy is to be uh, brightly lit. Yeah. And uh, just sunny and yeah. yeah right. Definitely. Uh, I think another thing that make a lot of these film noir films from the period, um, what holds true for them, a lot of them are on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. West, a lot right. of them are West Coast stories. Mostly LA as well. LA. Yeah. yeah. And you just wonder what, I mean, what is it about L.A. that makes it such a... I think it's always been kind of had a reputation of the police being corrupt and, you know, like the whole... I mean, Chinatown in particular, it's, you know, one thing that comes through that whoever controls the water controls the town. And that's still true today. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they're suffering from catastrophic drought, you yeah. know, and they're not allowed to water the lawns, but some rich people have been, yeah, you know, because sure. they pay for water to be imported. I mean, it's, you know, still that kind of who has what and... Mm-hmm. You know, and all that political corruption as well, yeah. Yeah, um, and we, we think about it during this time. I mean, uh, L.A. was still a, a kind of a developing city, right? You know, so a lot of it, it kind of uh, fastly, you know, quickly growing. But yep, yep. You know. So, you know, I think in terms of, of corruption, it was kind of. I'm mean, obviously any geographical location can be corrupted, but it just seemed like. A, well, I mean, also a lot of these detective novels took place. Uh, like a lot of the Raymond Chandler novels mm-hmm. um, took place on the, on the West Coast in L.A. So, Well, the story of L.A. Confidential as well, you know, with the Pierce, Patch, uh, Pierce Pratchett character, mm-hmm. you know, talking about, um, 
you know, the Santa Monica Freeway, 20 minutes to the ocean and blah, 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 no traffic. And, you know, we all know that L.A. is notorious for its traffic. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's just there's no 20 minutes to the beach from L.A. I mean, it's, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, other than, you know, if you're in L.A. at the beach or whatever. But, you know, there's this promise of, oh, everything's going to be great. Oh, sorry, sorry for the corruption that screwed everything up. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, they're supposed to have the premier police force. And, you know, that was the whole thing during the O.J. trial mm-hmm. was that the corruption of the police force basically got him off from his charge. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. allegedly. Yeah, so. and it's, it's ironic because you know, especially pre-smog LA in the time that they're talking yeah. here, it was a fairly sunny place and mm-hmm. bright. But if you think about this movie, you have to be hard pressed to remember: are there any scenes in sunlight? Any scenes in daylight? There's a couple, mm-hmm. but even then, they don't look like he pulls up to her house a couple of times in the daytime, and even then, they don't look bright and sunny. And and it's funny that you know, one of the sunniest cities on earth comes these dark and shadowy stories. Yeah, there's never any, like, you know, stories about I grew up in L.A. and I'm happy, the, you know, the warm, fuzzy suburban existence type of thing. It's always this pessimistic, cynical viewpoint of, you know, even if you grew up in L.A., you know, it's the phoniness of being in the movie industry or surrounded by it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing authentic to it, you know. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, they were saying about the Spanish-style houses. They're not even native to that area. But, you know, that was that was the trend at that time. And, you know, think of the palm trees. They're not even native to California. Mm-hmm. You know, Barbara Streisand's character says in, you know, um, what do we call it, the way we were, you know, uh, why are there palm trees here? I wish it would rain. You know, it's just, you know, mm-hmm. there, there's never a reprieve. There's even a, a comment by Neff in the movie that um, the Spanish-style houses were dated even right. then. Right, right. <laughs> when the... When the Film takes place mm-hmm. for thirty thousand. You could get one, right? Yeah. right. According to him, yeah. And uh, in Sunset Boulevard, actually, there's some commentary about um, you know the, the house that um, the uh, actress lives in is, is already like very passe. So it's almost like things that people mm-hmm. move on from styles very, right. very fast. And um, it's a very it's it's still kind of an, uh, a newer. Lo- location, a newer city, but mm-hmm. it still seems like it's already it's already dated by the time a lot of these stories are told. Right. So, uh, another thing I think uh, that a lot of the film noir films uh, share, they are often frame stories. You know, frame narratives. Where right. You, where you have, and you just wonder why, in terms of the subject matter, why why a lot of these stories told that way. You know, in this you have, I mean, you know, the entire character of this guy is doomed from the moment the, the film opens same with uh, Sunset Boulevard lots of other stories where it's like okay this is a horrible thing that's just happened let me tell let me tell you how kind of thing mm-hmm. um, why does that seem to work better or does it work better you know versus just having the story kind of unfold in front of you it's almost like it's a moral tale of some sort like you know watch out of this could happen to you type of mentality or whatever but you know I think that again it's like the the good guy that kind of gets duped into you know look what happened to you you end up dead in a pool Mm-hmm. You know, and it's kind of you don't watch out, you know, and mm-hmm. it's kind of like that, you know, reflection on if I had only known then what I know now, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. One thing I always forget when I teach uh, Sunset Boulevard is you don't necessarily know that it is um, the main character dead in the pool. Mm-hmm. At first. Right. It, he doesn't. I mean, it's now narr- it's narrated by the guy dead in the pool, mm-hmm. which is a very, it's a very interesting obviously a rare kind of narration where you have a basically a dead person narrating the story um, but you don't know and so sometimes I'll say oh yeah um, in my introduction I'll say yeah, that the story's narrated by um, the dead guy in the pool mm-hmm. right but you don't really know that until yeah. the end but 
Um, I mean, if you if you look closely, I mean, it is a, there is a clear shot of him in the pool, and you he doesn't really you don't have to be too but, perceptive. And I think part of it too is like the characters are never fully honest ever. You know, in a film noir, and only through the narration is there in total honesty. Mm-hmm. You know, because otherwise everybody's holding something back. You know, it's like in Chinatown. You know, that's my sister. That's my daughter. You know, <laughs> so it's like you know, tell me the truth. You know, and mm-hmm. not each of them kind of wait for you to kind of figure it out. You know, before I tell the truth. You know, mm-hmm. and so nobody's ever completely honest. This is what kind of scumbag I am, and why. Oh, yeah. You know, and who wants to reveal that? But you know, I, I almost see um, film noir as, as Old Testament films because. There is justice always, right. but never redemption. Yeah, and not necessarily justice for the right people, you right. know, because Faye Dunaway dies in Chinatown when it should be her, you know, discussing, you know, father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and... Yeah, I guess it's, it's very cynical commentary that mm-hmm. sometimes the the corruption wins out. Right. And... Um, well, you just kind of accept that there is corruption. I, I show one devil in a blue dress, mm-hmm. you know, with Don Denzel Washington, and... You know, he survives, and, you know, the right right people die and the wrong people, you know, the right people live. And um, But it's kind of like, now I have a bad taste in my mouth, but at least I know what the world is like. You know, not only, you know, from the racism that he's been suffering through his life, but also, you know, like, this is the reality of what people are like, too. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the, I mean, that's the, the, I think a lot of it has to do... Uh, the frame story structure may have a lot to do with a lot of these uh, novels were written in the first person, mm-hmm. almost as confessionals, and so it carries over, I think, very well on film. If you have, a, yeah, it's tough to convey that in a film otherwise. If, right. you, if you compare Sunset Boulevard and Double Indemnity, each of them begin, like you said, with a frame story, but it, they also begin with the same thing, like, well, how did it come to this? Mm-hmm. And then you watch it unfold. Um, and and it sort of uh, it, it hooks you in that mm-hmm. sense. Where yeah. I think the stories would be vastly different if they were simply linear tales. I mean, yeah. they would still be effective to a degree, but mm-hmm. I think that it kind of, you know, these are the the film equivalents of like you said, the dime novels, the mm-hmm. pulp fiction sort of things that um, they're lurid, and we want to see that. And, and right away, you see in Sunset Boulevard, you see a dead body, and in in Double Indemnity, you see a man. Dying, and right? That starts out. Yeah, it's not literature. You know, you're watching on screen. You're no. watching. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. compelling. One of my favorite things in in this, and we had talked about it too, is is it, for its time, is very very gra- fairly graphic use of blood. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Fred McMurray's character. Um, as the as he tells the tale in the frame story, the blood gets more prominent and it's shiny and, and, and you see it going down his arm and then towards the end he pulls that cigarette out and it's blood stained and it's, it, that, that's sort of a progression that I like in the film you can see he's feverish too like the sweat yeah. you know, all over him and everything mm-hmm. yeah. you know yeah we had also mentioned that in Sunset Boulevard um, you know he's he's shot to death in a pool uh, and there's no blood whatsoever um, mm-hmm. floating around so you, just, you, you wonder why why that worked out mm-hmm. Did, was the um, well, I think maybe Billy Wilder wanted you to focus on the body and not the gore of it you know what yeah. I mean yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, you had asked an interesting question when we first watched it so the movie was made in 1945 but it was set in 1938 and you would ask why 44 44 and set in 30 why, why set it six years earlier and mm-hmm. then I, I thought to myself uh, it just occurred to me well you know, by that time, you know, we would have been in the middle of World right. War II and we were fighting Nazis and it was a very clear good versus evil, mm-hmm. whereas here, you know, the murky 30s, the, you know... Fred McMurray probably would have been in the service yeah. or something like that. You and know, and the gangsters, yeah, or as a caddy right. as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so the gang, you know, 
in in the thirties you're dealing with the, the gangsters that rise up out of the law, you know, mm-hmm. prohibition. And so there was a more of a moral certainty in the forties than there was, I think, in the thirties. And so setting it back there, may, maybe that's why. Yeah, there was re- a clearly defined good guy, bad guy. Yeah, the Americans are good guys, Nazis are bad guys. Right. You know, I found that a little little interesting. Just you know, be like making a movie now uh, that's basically current current time, current day, but saying, oh, the year's two thousand ten. Mm-hmm. Right. Why? <laughs> Why randomly? Yeah. Back in 2010, things were so much easier. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the well, change you could figure, the yeah, you know, how rapidly things do change. Because, I mean, you know, in 2010, I don't even know if I had an iPhone. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I had a Blackberry back then. That's, you know, yeah. so, I mean, you know, things are totally different. <laughs> I don't think they make yeah. those anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I find it ironic, too. I think the Hayes Code actually works in favor of the film noir because even though, you know, because you see later films, we, we cited Chinatown mm-hmm. or even LA Confidential, and you're talking graphic language, even gra- even nudity mm-hmm. uh, and, and that sort of thing. Whereas in, you know, with the Hayes Code, they had to find their way around it. Right. You watch Double Indemnity, there's, there's quite a lot of very graphic innuendo, but as opposed to it being in your face, it's suggesting, too, that there's an undercurrent of things. And, you know, we're doing sort of nudge-nudge, wink-wink sex jokes, but it's hidden below the surface, and I think that actually thematically fits mm-hmm. as well. So, you know... In, in, yeah, because I think that that veil gets kind of dropped later on, you know. I always try to do with the film noirs, like, a, you know, historical perspective on them. Like, you know, I start with Double Indemnity and end with Matchpoint in 2005, but there's no real good ones from the 60s. You know that I can really point to. You know, I try to do one from every decade, and there's nothing. Yeah, you know, and even the the eighties, there's some really good ones, but they're very, you know, laden with nudity. You know, like really not school appropriate per se. I mean, you know, my favorite neo noir, as um, you know, other than the ones I show, is Body Heat. You know, it's terrific film. You know, Kathleen Turner's first big foray into you know, being the movie star and, you know, what her line in, I think is classic film noir when she says like, you're pretty stupid paraphrasing, but you know, like, and I like that in a man, you know what I mean? And that's, you know, you know, femme fatale, like personified, you know, and you know, there, I, it's, it's difficult to show a film like that in school because it is so provocative and, you know, like sexually provocative and, that's why yeah, it's difficult. Some of the ones that we talked about. I mean, you, you really can't show L.A. Confidential. Chinatown borders on it, but uh, mm-hmm. you know because it's so uh, you know such a classic for screenwriting. L.A. Confidential is just more the violence than anything. You yeah. know, which you know I'm not trying to play that down or whatever. But it, you know, like you know, it's easier to kind of get away with the violence as opposed to the sexuality. Mm-hmm. True. You know? True. Yeah. All right. With that, we're going to take a, a quick break, and then we'll get into uh, more specifics. Uh, regarding this classic noir film, Double Indemnity. This is The Ford Show, starring Dinah Shore with Peter Lynn Hayes and Robert Emmett Dolan and his orchestra, and our guest for tonight, Dennis Day, all presented with the Ford dealers and Lincoln Mercury dealers of America. And here is Dinah Shore. Soon or later you're gonna be coming around, I- Betcha, I'll bet you that I get you. You wait and see. Soon or later you wanna be hanging around. I'll bet you. I'll bet you if I let you. You. 
gonna knock on my door You did it before Matter of factly, I don't know exactly when But sooner or later you're gonna be coming around And want my loving again We are back. Um, there's a quote in uh, an article, an article that uh, Walter Freeman uh, referenced a little bit earlier, a uh, quote by Woody Allen, and this is what he had to say about double indemnity. It has all the characteristics of the classic 40s film as I respond to it. It's in black and white. Um, it's very witty. Story from a classic age. It has Edward G. Robinson, Barbara Stanwyck, Fred McMurray, and the tough voiceover. It has brilliantly written dialogue and a perfect score. That's one thing, um, you know, after seeing this a few times, um, the score doesn't necessarily stick out to me. Is that something that you find memorable? Not memorable, but I mean, maybe it's memorable in the sense that it <clears throat> was so subtle and did its job. It didn't need to be, mm-hmm. you know, that I, pronounced. I don't know for sure, <clears throat> um, kind of, you know, um, freestyling here, but it seems to me that a, a film like this would have kind of like a, like not a stock score, but kind of like a um, you just sort of take the this composer from your stable of compo- you know studio composers mm-hmm. and say you know we just we need some music it so it doesn't really stick out to me as um, extremely memorable but effect it wasn't effective. overdone either otherwise right. it'd be like okay a little right. bit too much or whatever right yeah there can there there can be soundtracks where it gets incredibly treacly or they tell you oh and you're supposed to be nervous here because we're right. doing this or a lot of swelling violins and I think that this is a very subtle score mm-hmm. uh, on in that regard yeah, I think a lot of the 80s movies you know when I show them in class it's you know a lot of synthesizers and a lot of you know <laughs> drum machines and stuff like that so I mean it's classic the 80s I don't feel like this is like oh that's so the 40s yeah. or something like that then the, mu- the, the musical montage in the middle you right know, with uh <laughs> Some yeah. awful band from yeah. that period. <laughs> um, like McCrady Kid comes to mind. Right. But anyhow, so yeah. I'm not trying to get us off topic, but uh, when you said uh, subtle, I think the the most unsubtle score in film history that I can think of is um, has to be um, uh, Spartacus. Most distracting <laughs> film score. I think I have to take several aspirin mm-hmm. during the course of that, uh, that film. But anyhow, um, as, a, as a writer, you know, obviously Woody Allen took... Uh, uh, mentioned the the brilliantly written dialogue. What do you th- what do you think about the dialogue? And um, I think yeah. for its time, it's good. I mean, you know, it definitely has that that scene where they're first meeting, and it's just like, how fast is that going? You know, that type of you know back and forth, very well timed. Ninety. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think too, like like the and again, I'm constantly comparing these to horror films, but horror films were well aware that they were slip bordering on the edge of parody mm-hmm. in, in a lot of scenes. Yeah. If you you look at um, um, Bride of Frankenstein and, and the character of Doctor Praetorius and and all that sort of thing, and they, they, these guys very well knew that they were pushing the line into comedy, and I, I think the same thing is true here. There's a there's a self-aware wit where, you know, let's go over the top with, with you know, uh, kiss me now, baby, and that sort of thing. And, mm-hmm. and I think they know very well that that's, that's potboiler stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're, they're embracing it. I love, for example, if you watch Fred McMurray's performance, 
he he goes over the line with those 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 line deliveries, but he's also his his facial expressions, his reactions, his nervousness is, is very good acting as well. So yeah, he's never smiling. Yeah, his eyes are always squinting. Yeah, yeah. You know? And a lot of the, the war films weren't extremely long. Many of them were, you know, they were meant to be on a let's say a double mm-hmm. a double bill uh, at the cinema, and uh, so I think a lot has to unfold very quickly in a lot of these plots. Yeah, it's yeah. not none of them is an epic or anything like that, you know. So right. it's not going to be like a Lawrence of Arabia type of thing where you have right. to have an intermission, right? You know, we we have a very slow arc uh, mm-hmm. where where this. I mean, the fact that they want each other has to basically unfold in a, right. in a f- less than five minute scene. Yeah, <laughs> well. and so that's why it's so um, crisp and pithy. I think a lot of dog. Yeah, and I think there there is a heightened uh, feel to it where. Yeah, people don't really talk like that in real life, but it's still believable in the context mm-hmm. of the story. Yeah, and interesting, you know. Well, you mentioned, Mike, that, that you know it lends itself to parody, mm-hmm. as, as all genre work does. Eventually, we we come full circle where you know some you have the revisionist stuff, then the parody, and then back to the roots. The um, you know, and, and that we see that in almost every kind of genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, and this definitely is easy stuff for that, you know. I mean, this scene where, you know, they're driving together and she's giggling or whatever I just talked about, but, you know, I mean, that's that's easily mimicable. It seems silly when you're watching it, you know, but, you know. Yeah. I, I like how, you know, when they're getting ready to murder him in the car and he's hiding in the back seat right. and the signal for him to get up and strangle him or break his neck is that she has to blow on the horn three times as opposed to turning around and saying, now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, what difference would it make? Because you know? <laughs> they're in the middle of nowhere. Let's make a lot of noise and right. blow the horn exactly. several times. Yeah, right. Let's wake up the neighbors so they can see what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, yeah, I think I think wit. A lot of these movies do have uh, a lot of the film noir scripts from this time mm-hmm. period. Just, I mean, wit is is very much one of the main ingredients to to the dialogue. The characters just seem to have just a, uh, and perhaps that's maybe that's that's necessary with characters who are, are generally just very unlikable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's kind of like Claude Rains in Casablanca. He's he's pretty much a, a pretty loathsome individual. But the fact that you kind of walk away from the film, kind of well, not at the end. At the end, he redeems himself. Right. But during the course of the movie, you still kind of like him because yeah. he's so. There's, I'm but, shocked, shocked. I tell you to find that there's gambling going on here. Here are your winnings. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the wit just makes him likable. Right. And in, in the case of a lot of these characters, the wit do, do not make them entire. You know. Kind mm-hmm. of, Makes them not entirely loathsome. Yeah, and I think the dialogue has to be taken for its you know time period as well. I mean, you know, movies in the forties aren't that very much different than you know the type of dialogue that's in here too. Are you going to buy the fact that you know another Barbara Streisand Stanwyck film, Ball of Fire? You know, is she going to be the you know the sexy chanteuse that you know gets all these intellectuals to kind of you know follow her around in a conga line? You know what I mean? You kind of have to suspend disbelief for that too. You know, so you know. If you guys are in the mood to play psychologist a little bit, um, or sociologist, um, perhaps we could talk a bit about why film noirs came to came to be at this time. I mean, why why now? Why not in the '30s? Why not? I mean, we. I think we talked about the World War II aspect of it, and you know, people. I know that you know my mother grew up during that time period, and she very vividly talked about how they were. She grew up in New York Beach. They were trained to look for submarines. They were trained to look for. 
you know, like the Germans coming to attack, you know, mm-hmm. and there was this very cynical kind of like who could trust anybody, you know, you could be a German spy, mm-hmm. you know, so there's, it kind of fed into the paranoia of the time, you know, especially afterwards too, like the, you know, like the cold war, you know, that easily lent itself easily to film noirish type of films, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, storylines, et cetera. So, you know, it's just a very pessimistic time. Sure. You know, like the innocence is kind of gone, you know, if there ever was any, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You think about it, uh, a generation of of people who have lived through such horrible atrocities, yeah. you know, going back to World War One, the Depression, World War Two. I mean, the the collective cynicism yeah, is very knew? understandable. Who right. knew if we were going to be victorious? Right. You know, Hitler was a mastermind. Right. You know. So of course this is going to come. This is going to come through in the art. You know, uh, if you're if you're an artist, um, if you're a writer, whatever it might be, filmmaker. You know, obviously this is always going to be you know an element of um, you know fantasy and perhaps naive film films or any art in any genre. But of course you're going to see uh, kind of an element of these. Uh, cynical films that are going to surface and mm-hmm. become kind of part part of the mainstream more part of uh what you what you'd see in the in the cinema back during this time it's just that's the nature of the artist is to kind of reflect what what's going on mm-hmm. in, in the world well, but who's going to these films i mean these were not children's films so you're talking about young men and women and the men most likely are going away to or coming back from the war and 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 facing that prospect or having been through that you know they're going to be bitter and cynical about life and and about good versus evil as well. And even though the general tenor of the time was the moral certainty of World War II, the reality of it for these folks is is being reflected. This is, there's there's really not. I mean, I'm sure on the battlefield, mm-hmm. there's not heroes and villains. There's right. moral uh, ambiguity. Well, think of the target audience at that time, too. It wasn't, you know, nowadays it's like, um, you know, teenagers, essentially. You know, most movies are made because teenagers have presumably a ton of disposable income. They get an allowance. They can spend it on going to a movie. You know, back then, the target audience was adult women. You figure all the adult men were fighting in the war. You know, the only men around really were elderly or older people. You know, so... You know, young women whose boyfriends or husbands were off fighting in the war. They didn't know if they were coming back. So there was that kind of paranoia from them, too, and that cynicism of, you know, as well, that it kind of fed into easy enough to make them that target audience. Mm -hmm. You you mentioned the lack of noir in the 60s. Um, You know, we're talking here where these are films showing corrupt people within society, whereas in the 60s, the view was society itself is corrupt. And so maybe it just... And it was a really transitional decade, too, because yeah. you figured the early 60s movies were still things like, you know, Rock Hudson, Doris Day films, you know, the kind of, you know, there's one I used to show called Sex and the Single Girl, you know, it's still, it's, um, Tony Curtis had his secretary take her notes by sitting on his lap, you know, and then by the end of the 60s, it's, you know, a lot more cinema verite where, you know, you have like The Graduate, you know, where Dustin Hoffman is a, you know, movie star, you know, and it's kind of like, you know... Midnight Cowboy was the winning movie in 1969. You know, 1960 was The Apartment. You know, so it's total shift. You know, the I'd say the moral you know shift in the country that time. So there wasn't really, you know, film noir wasn't ripe for you know being made at that time either. You know, I mean, somebody probably could have done a decent one at that time anyway. But any time is a good time for any good film. It probably wouldn't have been as embraced by the public. Yeah. to be seen on, you know, matinee bills. Right. 
Um, but there, there could be films out there that maybe just aren't on our radar that were. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe our I've looked. I mean, our I've, thousands of listeners could right. could let us know uh, what are their famous uh, favorite '60s film noirs. I've often like looked in, right. you know, like trying to find from that, you know, recognizable titles, etc. And maybe there's like a little hidden gem type of thing, you know, right. where you know somebody may like it and you'd be like, you know, never heard of it before or something. Mm-hmm. But you figure the early part of the decade too, like. The you know winning films were like My Fair Lady, Sound of Music, you know. So it was still the you know musical, yeah. you know that was still kind of king, you know. Right, right. Um, and you know some film scholars again point to Citizen Kane as kind of like the proto film noir film. Mm-hmm. Um, even though you can you know if you want to get really specific here, you can kind of uh, see the influence in like you know the German expressionism, right. but um, in terms of mainstream American cinema um, you know you, Citizen Kane was one of the first films uh, that really sort of used that you know shadow and darkness mm-hmm. as, a, as a main element yeah, to tell the story yeah turn the sound down just physically looking at the film right. has that noir feel to it right where honestly there were there were, there were studio producers who would uh, tell directors look we want to see their faces we paid, right. we paid a lot of money for that face mm-hmm. we want to see them but uh, that's not what directors always wanted to do. They wanted to use shadows, and Wells was kind of like you know having carte blanche basically in his contract to do these things. So, you know, he and, and not necessarily having all these name well you know well known actors in his in his in Kane. He was able to kind of use shadows, and so um, some say that really kind of kicked the door open uh, for more experimentation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Noir, Noir was a um, you know another layer in in. in the growing idea of film. I mean, you go back to Buster Keaton and his work in the general. He was the first person to say, you know, the camera is not a passive observer of action; it's part of the storytelling process. And he was putting cameras on moving trains and making camera uh, angles visual part of the process. And Noir does that too, with light and shadows mm-hmm. and angles and shapes, as opposed to it just simply being let's light the scene and play it. It contributes to the story, the theme, the mood, mm-hmm. uh, and that sort of thing. And that that I think you know. From Citizen Kane and such onward is, is a great leap forward in, yeah. in style. You know? Billy Wilder himself, you know, came from Germany, so yeah. there's that influence too. You know, I mean, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, most of the innovative filmmakers of that time weren't necessarily born here in the United States, and you know, kind of brought their sensibilities with them as well. Yeah, you know, that's, that's true. And kind of changed things. Mm-hmm. It's like the CGI of its time, light and shadow mm-hmm. angle. <laughs> a comment that Wells made when he first came on the the set. Uh, as a whatever 24, 23 year old um, aspiring director, he one comment he made to his cinematographer at that time, uh, Greg Tolan. He says, "Isn't it essentially uh, strange that the film is in the camera, uh, which made it obviously far less mobile?" Um, and he almost like foresaw a day. Um, you know, Tolan instantly said, you know, yeah, you're right. Because it, it makes it very frustrating for a cinematographer to be able to move, you know, move the camera wherever you want. And so, you know, he's, he thought at the time that eventually the camera is just going to be kind of like an eye and, and the, the film or wherever you're recording is going to be somewhere. You don't have to worry about mm-hmm. it. And that's kind of like almost like a prophecy. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was a film that came out last year called Tangerine that was filmed entirely on an iPhone. Well, yeah. You know, so I mean, you know, it democratizes filmmaking, you know, definitely, definitely. Yeah, you know, yeah. that anybody at any given moment can make a movie. Yeah. You know, and I mean, it was a good film, too. It wasn't like, you know, some shoddily shot type of, you know, oh, look, look, I can make a film in my backyard type of mentality. It was, <laughs> you know, decently done. And, you know, you would never know that it was shot on an iPhone. 
Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. So, well, John Lennon once said that um, as an artist, he can you know, you know, if you give him a tuba, he'll get you something out of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I was gonna make a Yoko Ono comment, but I, <laughs> I think I won't. Uh, yeah, we're gonna. Yeah, yeah, she ruined everything. Um, uh, you know, it's, we, we we talk you know as English teachers, and, yeah, and no. <laughs> <laughs> we've lost a listener. Right. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. and Sean, I alienated Shelley Duvall fans uh, as well yeah. in a previous podcast. Yeah. <laughs> as English teachers, you know, when we teach literature, we teach it, you know, writing as a construct. This is not simply writing what happened. You construct it. And, and the same thing when we teach film. And so oftentimes we show a film from this era and the students are viewing it through modern eyes, uh, which sometimes things can seem artificial or dated or or slow paced. But I think it's important to, to always um, frame it within its time frame, but also the timeless aspect of it as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, have you found when you show this film um, in your courses, how do the students react to it? I think most of them like it for the most part. I think, you know, yeah, definitely, you know, the, as the genre progresses through the decades, you know, when it gets to definitely Boudreaux, Sally Confidential, um, you know, even like Chinatown or Matchpoint, they really are gripped by those stories, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that perhaps they wouldn't be so much so if they hadn't seen the kind of foundations beforehand, but they kind of give it the benefit of the doubt as well, you know, kind of understanding that it was, you know, uh, yeah, it's not something that I would watch myself, but, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of, you know, cool to say that I've watched Double Indemnity now. Right. And, you know, when my parents or grandparents talk about it, I know what they're talking about. Or when, you know, that line of dialogue, you know, all that reminds me of, you know, something from Double Indemnity or something. They like the cynicism. Uh, you know, I usually find that they they enjoy the, um, you know, just the, I guess the darkness that it exhibits. Mm-hmm. They find that kind of interesting. Right. Um, but of all the the classic noir films that I show, the one they react most positively to is um, Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. Um, again, the cynicism's there, and they, they really, I think, find the character Norman Desmond's character. Uh, well. The character Norman Desmond very interesting, mm-hmm. you know, kind of crazy and yeah, and it shows the underbelly of Hollywood as well, and you know that yeah. it's not this, you know, all these glamorous, you know, movie premieres and you know people looking pretty and done up and everything. Right. That's you know, a lot well, of sleaze. It is, and it's a, a, you know, not to get off double indemnity too much, but uh, that film they it was hated by the you know by a lot of the producers and film mm-hmm. bosses at the time because it's it's an incredible um, indictment of of Hollywood and the way right. it works and just, you know, oh, you're done, you know, oh, this star, she's not serving us, you know, she's not selling tickets anymore, let's just discard her, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing and it shows, you know, the, you know, just the, the shadow. Which is a reality, but, you know, they must be, oh, have reality shoved in their face. Right. You know? Well, the kids know it's reality because they, they still see it. Yeah. That's how old was Gloria Swanson when she made the film too? Yeah. You I know, think she was, of, she was only, um, you know, maybe 50. Right. You know, but, you know, 50 is, you know, <laughs> oh. old news in Hollywood and, you know, yeah. who writes movies for 50 year old women? I know. You know, even now. I know. You know, that's very true. You know, and we'll have Meryl Streep play that and screw everybody else. You know? <laughs> so. yeah, I just watched a film last night, The Intern, with, with Robert right. De Niro, and they have Renee Russo, an Academy Award winning actress, in a throwaway part. But she never, she never won. But. Oh, she didn't? Oh, no. I thought she did. She was nominated. I'm sorry, right? Nope. No. I thought she was. No, she's, well, I mean, she was a former model, you know, and she definitely has made her mark, you know, definitely. Who would have ever thought? Beautiful woman. Really good actress. Yeah. Thomas Crown Affair was yeah. terrific. Yeah. You know, and where did she go? 
after Thomas Crown Affair. True. Who am yeah. I thinking of? I, I go to swear. I apologize. No, no, I withdraw. Uh, but uh, but again, you know, like you said, a decent actress, and yet in this yeah. this part, throwaway part, and and I mean, right. You know, um, I, I get the same reaction when I show. Double Indemnity, Casablanca, or even Young Frankenstein from the kids. I can't stand the fact that they think they're going to watch a black and white film. Yeah. And, you know, as if color, forbid. color is the only thing that makes a film mm, decent. Boring, otherwise. Yeah, and, <laughs> well, you have no imagination. Right. You know? <laughs> but not yeah. only that, like I said, they, they really, I think, use used it to good effect. Yeah. I mean, it, it was the medium at the time. And, right. And so. Well, and as I told them, I'm like, you know, a film from 2011, I think it was 2011, you know, was a silent film and a black and white film and it won the Oscar. Yeah. You know, The Artist. And what know? film so, uses color sure. the same way, and there are films that use color, obviously, uh, to great effect, but what mm-hmm. film uses it the same way that the, the idea of black and white was used? Right. You know, as part of it. It wasn't just like, oh, let's just do this for a lark. It was done right. for a purpose, yeah. I mean, Ben Stiller's film, uh, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, if you just watch that film, he, he does a nice job of, of using color to slowly show, you know, Walter Mitty's widening world. Uh, mm-hmm. Although that film's not really considered a classic. I enjoyed, right. enjoyed it very much. But, uh, you know, for that, and, and you know, you say a great film, you cited Blade Runner, a color film. But when I think of Blade Runner, I almost see it in black and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think it's a lot more forgiving thing, too. I think, you know... If, like if I, whenever I've taken a photograph of somebody, they always look better in a black and white photo. It doesn't show the flaws and things like yeah. that too. And you know, it's it's more stylistic. It's more kind of distance, dramatic, distancing, dramatic. Yeah, yeah, because it can be the simplest photograph, but it has that much more drama attached to it because mm-hmm. it's in black and white. Yeah, you know, yeah, and it's you know the camera captures something that you would don't see when you're taking the picture too. You know. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, you can make the argument that color. Um, almost takes away from the image because you're, you know, there's, there's more information there mm-hmm. in terms of call it like, you know, on the gradients and the yeah, shading. Yeah, this is how you should see it. Right. You know, whereas with black and white, it's kind of, you know. Yeah. If you've seen those films that Ted Turner has colorized oh, right. and you look at them and you're like, they're, they're not better because no, of it. It's a wonderful. Horrible. Life looked horrible. <laughs> there was <laughs> no. a joke where he was, he was trying to uh, colorize the first 20 minutes of Wizard of Oz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be shocked. Yeah. Well, well, who who was it that spoke out against that and said, "Tell so and so to keep his hands off my Wells? keep his crayons"? Can yeah. Tell because he was going to he was going to colorize Citizen Kane. Yeah. Keep his crayons off my film. And Wells, <laughs> Wells on um, you know, I, I think this is like right before he died. He said, "You know, tell tell Ted Turner to keep his Crayolas away from my right. movie." Yeah. Um, which I think history has made the right choice right. in rejecting it entirely. Doesn't even exist. I mean, you know, kids today don't even know what colorization is or anything. I know. You know so I wonder. Goodness. I wonder if Turner has uh, commented on his <laughs> crusade well, recently. You know, he still owns that whole library of films. So yeah. you know, fortunately, he's kind of kept, you know kept his hands off. Yeah, I remember actually um, as a kid, even as a kid, I, I had you know, I guess morals in this area yeah. where I was like, I remember like. Um, before DVDs and stuff, you know, you'd wait for, like, It's a Wonderful Life to come on TV, and then I remember it coming on a couple times, and it being the colorized version, I remember right. actually adjusting the TV yeah. set to the black well, down, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, noir is a genre I don't, it wouldn't exist uh, in right. color. Um, no. And, and thank goodness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. Perhaps his marriage to Jane Fonda should probably set him straight or something, I don't know. That's probably the thing out of that, you know. Yeah, to, to tamper with someone else's yeah, vision. final product like right. that. You know, yep. you know, it's not like somebody said, "If only we could film this in color." It's, right. No, it's we film this in black and white. Yeah. Let's right. make it look. I mean, they used to have to consider things. You know, doing a Civil War film, 
uh, blue a blue uniform doesn't show up as if it were suggested blue. They they would have to make them green in mm-hmm. some films so that they would read as blue and black and white. I mean, they had to yeah. uh, adjust to what they could do and, right. and and get the look just right. And a lot of the depth of field that a lot of directors went for uh, chose black and white for that reason. You know, you can't get the same depth of field with color as you can with with black and white. And we we still see the colors that that, that are suggested. I mean, right. you know, Neff's blood shining mm-hmm. in there. Uh, pe- people see uh, Frankenstein's creature as as being green, and he mm-hmm. was, you know, he wouldn't have been. He would have been, well, you know, and horrible. even in like Raging Bull, Scorsese, you know, purposely filmed in black and white so the blood wouldn't be the focus. You know, the bloody matches of yeah. Jake LaMotta. You know, mm-hmm. and especially when that he gets punched and the blood goes into the first couple rows. Mm-hmm. You know, that scene in particular. Mm-hmm. You know, there aren't many films being made in black and white. I mean. Um, here and there. Here and there. Yeah. Should the artist? Uh, yeah, you know, a couple years ago. Um, yeah, but it's an extreme rarity. Um, I mean, during this time, during, you know, the film noir films were made during the, an era where color was a viable mm-hmm. choice. But many of the directors just—it was an art. It's an, a part of the artistic decision uh, choice making mm-hmm. process to make it in black and white. But now, it seems like the marketplace, or if you're going to put for like film companies when they put their movie, their, their you know, their budgets together. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, if you are going to make a movie in black and white, you are definitely going to reduce the number of tickets sold. Right, and they're business first and foremost. They want the most people sitting in the seats at the most time, paying the most money. So, right. you know, so right off the top, you're eliminating, um, you're alienating some people. Yeah, they're not going to make like Captain America in black and white. No, you but know, think of how bold that would be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it probably has a lot to do with the fact that we don't have um, a movie going. Um, you know, population mm-hmm. that that tolerates this. It's not just not part of the convention, movie going convention. Right. To to expect okay, black and white is a possibility. Mm-hmm. So it's not even a possibility with a lot of people. Yeah, I can't even imagine my nephews are eight and five how they'd react to a black and white film. Yeah. You know, but even retro, you know, the Star Wars films when the original Star Wars was filmed, there was some use of matte paintings and special effects. But there was a, as much as they could. They they filmed it as realistically as possible whereas then the the prequels come out and they're all CGI and they're mm-hmm. just you know soulless entities and so when they went back and made The Force Awakens they tried to go back to that right. uh, older style mm-hmm. and, and I think you know it, it appears a little with a little more heart to it yeah now we lost George Lucas as a listener thank you <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, George. <laughs> it's funny. My, my daughter, she's, when she was four, she once referred to um, olden times as a, a time when everything was gray. Ah. Because the world was black and white, right? Yeah, back in like the 1600s. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. yep. Maybe even the 1930s. <laughs> yep. So I give this film a thumbs up. Yeah, Double I mean, I enjoy it. I, you know, if not for, you know, Brilliant. Well, it is brilliant in its time, you know. So I mean, it, you know, it's. I wouldn't say it's on my top twenty even, but mm-hmm. you know, definitely have to respect it nonetheless. And mm-hmm. you know, I show it every year. Yeah. Yeah. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Oh, definitely thumbs up. I, I love this film. And again, maybe not in my top twenty, but then we're talking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we enjoy thousands of films. Right. But uh, I just there's so much I I love about this film. Seeing mm-hmm. these two actors that I've I've seen in other more benign roles playing this so convincingly, mm-hmm. and the cinematography and the and and you know as I said the flying in the in the face of the haze code with the innuendo. I just. Uh, I just think it's a it's a wonderful film. I think it holds up well, um, and I think that the parts that don't, you know, kiss me, baby, mm-hmm. you know, those kinds of lines, I still embrace them and love them because they're just they are what they are. It's uh, 
you know, we, we can we can look at modern films, you know, superhero films, and the dialogue is just as purple, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and just as ridiculous. So, uh, you know, two thumbs way up for me on this film. Mm-hmm. And I think without it, too, there wouldn't be the modern film noir. So, you know, thank goodness it was there because, yeah. you know, I think the film noir entity or, you know, like genre itself is something that I, I really enjoy a lot, mm-hmm. you know, not necessarily because, you know, I just love to watch people get murdered and, you know, whatever, <laughs> but, you know, it definitely tells a good story. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think of a film again, like LA confidential is terrific film, you know, a great film. film. And were it not for the fact that it was released the same year as Titanic probably would have been awarded a lot more generously, you know, sure. but, you know, great movie and, and is on all accounts a, Tremendously better film than Titanic was. Yeah. I, I'm not a fan of Titanic. Right. I mean, in hindsight, you know, 20 yeah. years down the road, you know, what are critics going? You know, won all the swept all the critics awards that year. Oh, yeah. You know, not the you know Academy Awards or whatever. Well deserved. But, yeah. Yeah. Well, there was, there was no competing with Leo. Yeah. That year. <laughs> yeah, was, you know, and you know, like Titanic is a good movie. So I mean, it wasn't like you know it was undeserving, but yeah. you know, at the same time, you know, that year in particular, I thought was a good year for films. Anyway, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this film for me, it's, um, in terms of film noir, I put it in my top five. Mm-hmm. You know, I, oh, yeah, I, definitely. I mean, I will normally show, in terms of classic noir, um, The Maltese Falcon, which doesn't always go over well. That, mm-hmm. I think a lot of the younger students find it kind of kind of dry. And Big Sleep I've shown before, too, and it kind of has that same reaction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, with... Um, the Maltese Falcon is again it's a classic, you know, the detective, you know, mm-hmm. private eye who's I like always a big a step sleep just because Laura Bacall sings in it. You know, <laughs> so it's kinda of cool. But you don't consider you don't show Citizen Kane as a film noir. No. But, nor would you necessarily show Casablanca, but certainly many elements there. Yeah. Yeah. Which and which is what I like about like this and Casablanca is they were not necessarily films that, that were going to bank on their star power, they were films that became classic and were actually produced in a sort of a factory type mm-hmm. of setting. Right. And they churn, they're churning out a love story set in Casablanca, churning out a murder story set in L.A., and yet they, they end up becoming, you know, yeah, huge I classics. That. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you were saying anyway, I'm sorry, uh, you said uh, The Big Sleep, uh, Maltese Falcon, the Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard. Um, I don't I've know shown for Murder. Yeah, yeah know, that's a good but, one. Yeah. yeah. It's a you know there's a lot of um, stuff sometimes you know to make selections because uh, you're always yeah eliminating. I've done the asphalt jungle yeah you know movies like that right, yeah right. all right I think on that note we will uh, we'll wrap up the program and uh, I'd like to thank my colleagues for joining uh, me today and um, again if you could uh, rate us on uh, on iTunes uh, classroom critics. And uh, on our Facebook page, we'd appreciate some feedback and uh, hopefully generate some discussion on the films that we we discuss. And um, we look forward to um, seeing you next time on Classroom Critics. Thank you. Thank you.